I want to open up to you uh, Mark chapter 4. And uh, some of you know, obviously, most of you realize today is Easter. And uh, I don't want to break the habit of a lifetime by actually celebrating <laughs> Easter. Those of you who have been with us for the, the four or five years the church has been around realize that we, we tend to not pay much attention to the church calendar, partly because the church calendar is not a biblical thing. But there's, a, there's actually a really important reason why I just want to keep moving through the Gospel of Mark. And that's that a lot of people view the gospel, you know, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection as a little bit like um, grandma's special crockery, which, you know, sits in the cupboard most of the year and only comes out um, on special occasions. And the reality is that for us as a church, we recognize that the, the announcement and the, the reality of Christ bearing our sins on the cross and of his resurrection to proclaim a kind of victory over death and new life for us in his kingdom is not just something that we wheel out, news that we wheel out once a year. It's something that we kind of sit and marinate in. And it's more like the kind of daily use um, pots and pan, pans and plates and knives and forks that you use in your kitchen every day. Or to use another, another analogy, it's not like the special suit which you, you know, occasionally I've had the, the, the misfortune of pulling my suit out of the cupboard in preparation for a wedding and realize that it no longer fits, which is always an awkward thing. And you think, well, why, you know, this thing, I, I should be so familiar with um, the, the gospel that it's not like the special suit you bring out once a year and suddenly you feel uncomfortable in, but rather it's like your favorite T-shirt. It's something that you are, you're, you're wearing the whole time. And our deliberate effort as a church is to see and revel in the gospel and everything that we're looking at every single Sunday and to take communion together each week is the kind of the pinnacle and the focus of the Christian life. And here's something else interesting. If Jesus were, 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 were preaching, you know, if he were in my role today or in any church across the world, one of the things I think he might do, uh, he, he'd notice, first of all, the interesting thing that happens in most other churches, not necessarily in our one, but in most other churches in non-city not non-world uh, city context where a lot of people come to church at Easter. Maybe it's one of two times that they, they go to church, uh, Christmas and Easter. And he, he might notice this, and he might, you know, rather than just doing the normal Easter thing, he might, he might actually want to preach something exactly like the passage we're looking at today. Because whenever Jesus saw people making a special effort and saw people gathering in crowds around him, one of the things he does is he, he, he cuts right across their expectations and begins to dig around in their hearts and, and expose some of the, the real spiritual sickness that might be under the surface, you know, under the, the, kind of, the, the kind of well-polished veneer of arriving and being part of this, this church ceremony thing. So I want to read to you Mark 4, 1 to 20, and I think you'll begin to, to gather what I, what I mean by this. It's the end of a long day for Jesus. It's the end of um, a day of ministry. And uh, the crowds are just flocking to him. And here's what he does. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So he, he gets onto the water's surface, which apparently gives a real acoustic advantage. And uh, he, you can see the crowd are kind of pressing up to the water's edge all around him so everybody can hear. And it says, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, 
Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed, seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, so that's the end of his public sermon. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but not for those outside but, sorry, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. I want you to just consider this scene for a second. This is a, a big crowd, and there are a number of occasions in the Gospels where Jesus gathers large numbers of people because there is generally a positive interest and excitement and a buzz about him. There's a respect. He's doing amazing things. He's healing the sick. He's preaching uh, in ways that no one had ever heard anyone preach before. He's, his teaching cuts to the heart, and yet is so full of hope and life. And all these things cause people to come and, and gather around him at certain seasons in his ministry. Not always, of course. And when Jesus um, sees a crowd like this, he doesn't you know, do the kind of um, the preacher thing where he sort of tells a few jokes and leans on the podium and then uh, entertains them a little bit and then calls for an offering. You know, he's, he's not into that at all. Rather, what he does is he, he delivers a confusing but searching parable, just tells them the story of the sower going out and sowing seed and there being different, different responses and then he says, here as he is to hear, let him hear. End of sermon. It's like a mic drop moment. He just finishes, walks off the scene, and that's that. And people are kind of scratching their head, and they go home. Okay, interesting. And you ask, why, why does he act like this? Because it, it's a little bit obtuse in one sense, isn't it? Why is, he being, why is he almost being difficult? Why is he not giving the crowd what they want? And one of the things that you consistently see about him is that he is just not impressed with crowds, he's not, he's not there to try and get a, a following uh, with just sort of an you know, entertainment or just giving people what they want. What he wants, and what he wants of you and I, of course, is discipleship. Um, uh, this, to me, is a really important theme because this, you know, we're coming on the back of a weekend away as a church where many people felt you know, 
something of the woo of God and God working in our lives. And there can be something of an emotional high that comes with that. And then the challenge of everyday life. And we've got to figure out what's the difference between being just excited about Jesus and being a part of the crowd and what does it mean to actually be a disciple, to walk with him on day-to-day life. And Jesus isn't impressed by crowds, and he's not particularly impressed by religious performance or either. He doesn't care for mere attendance. You know, when I was a kid, I was a Boy Scout. And um, I wasn't a particularly good Boy Scout or devoted to it. I only had about three badges of the possible dozens that you can collect. Um, I was very on the back foot with the whole thing. But um, I think, I, you know, I don't know why, just socially awkward or something like that. And uh, so, but, you know, the whole purpose is you collect all these badges that represent different skills as you progress through um, the experience of being a Boy Scout. And some people treat religion a bit like that. You know, I got my christening when I was a baby, and then my confirmation, and then I, was, then I, then I t- attend church on certain key occasions, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's like you get your badges on your arm. And that's kind of the way we, we humans are wired. We think of faith that way. We kind of engage with faith at that level. And Jesus, he just wants to cut through all the rubbish. And he sees this great crowd on the beach, and... What he's interested in is he's interested in diagnosing the heart. And it's the same thing he'd be interested in if today, speaking to you. The same thing he is interested in, I should say, in speaking to you. He wants to speak to your heart. And he's interested in diagnosing your spiritual condition. When great crowds gather, or small crowds, there can be a superficial unity of purpose and intention. We're here to worship God. But you know that just beneath that surface, beneath the, the nice clothes that you might put on on, on Easter Sunday, and beneath the, the superficial veneer of unity here, beneath that is incredible chaotic diversity of where we're at in our spiritual walk. For some of you, you're moving towards God. You can feel something of his woo and his call on your life, and you know he's calling your name. And you feel, you know, even in spite of yourself, that constant tug, your, your life is changing. You're moving in that right direction. But for some of you, it's the very opposite. And you may be hiding it this morning. But you're more conscious that your life is, is slowly drifting. It's like, you know, the leash is getting longer. And you're, you're further and further away from a meaningful relationship with Jesus. Along with that are... All the different experiences that you're, you may be facing. For some it may be that you're in the heat of temptation. A particular thing in your life which is potentially the death of you in one sense. Spiritually perhaps. For others it's, it's, it's being caught up in anxieties and cares. or Whatever it is. It could be suffering. Whatever it is. We know that beneath the kind of unity that seems so apparent on the surface, beneath that, there's, you know, we, we, we'd be a fascinating thing just to sit and talk with each one of you and find out, okay, what's really going on? What's going on in your spiritual journey? So when Jesus looks on the crowd, you know, it says in John's Gospel, he, knew, he knows the heart of man. I think there's a sense in which Jesus could look someone in the eye and he knows beneath whatever they expression they have he knew what was happening in their heart and he tells stories like this as an aid to try and draw out to help us come to a self-realization of where we're at spiritually 
And I want to, this week what I want to do is I want to focus on the first three kinds of soil. And next week we're going to kind of turn it around and look at Jesus, Jesus' desire for you, his passion for you, what he wants to see happen in you. But this is really a diagnostic, what we're doing this morning. And it may be the case that one or, or two of these things resonate in a deep way. And Jesus would call you to act on what you're hearing. Here's the first one. He talks about the path. The first kind of person is likened to a path. And you've got to picture, you know, we're not talking about tarmac here. We're talking about the edges of the field where the, the soil is compressed through people walking. And uh, it's, it's compacted and hard. And he says in verse 15, it says, uh, These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Satan pictured like a flock of birds just seeing all this, this feast just strewn across the path. And they just come and gobble the whole thing up. And what does he mean? He, he's talking to those of you who, when you hear somebody communicating the truth about Jesus, or the gospel, from the Bible, there's just no response in your heart. It's like a complete flatness. It doesn't seem to have any impact on you. No, no, you don't perceive any, any activity going on in your spirit. It's just nothing. There's no emotion, you can say. Um, you know how, like, I don't know if, when you were a kid, you ever had one of those magnet and iron filings kits where you could sort of see the wonderful patterns and the way that iron responds to the magnet and how it's so sensitive to, to the pull and the attraction. And, the, the, and, and it's an incredible thing to, to see. But you bring a magnet near a piece of aluminium, there's nothing. It's just complete non-response. And you may feel a bit more like the aluminium than, or aluminum for you Americans than the... Sorry, we have, to, we have to dump things down occasionally. but <laughs> You may feel more like that than the... Um, then the iron filings, where there's a, there's a response in you, an emotional response. And, you know, or another way of putting it is there's no, there's no conscience response to what you're hearing. You know, some people are very sensitive of conscience. They hear what God wants in your life, and immediately there's a, there's a heart-rending, you know, looking inwards and thinking, Lord, how do I change? But for some of you, you just think, I'm fine. It's like, you know, you put the key in the car, turn the key, and there's nothing on the dashboard. Nothing, like the car battery is dead. And not, I don't want it to be offensive, but it's like the impact of what we're talking about brings about no response in you. Other things might bring a response in you, but this doesn't. It's just flat, just completely dead. And you may feel there's no kind of existential desire in you for a spiritual life. And if there is, it seems that Christianity isn't the answer. If that's you, it kind of brings up the question, where do you go from here? Because in a sense, it might feel like a futile exercise, me standing here and talking to you, you know, being a bit like the sower, sowing the seed, uh, knowing that it's having no impact upon you. You're just you know, checking your watch, wondering when you can leave, you were dragged here, whatever it was. And there are a couple of things. I, you know, my, my conviction is that Jesus told the story for a reason. Not least to get through, even to people in that situation. And a couple of things I think you have to understand. One is that there's a spiritual reality to what's going on in your life that maybe you haven't perceived. 
Jesus doesn't talk about this as just a natural thing. He says there is a supernatural thing. He says when he describes how the birds come and just feast on the seed, and he says it has no impact, no lasting impact on your life because it's taken away immediately. You forget instantly the things that you were, you were hearing. C.S. Lewis was... Um, an Oxford don and literature professor who became a Christian um, sort of in, you know, a bit later in life and his life was turned around. But one of the things he, he wrote was a, an intriguing story in which he imagined the spiritual realm. The senior demon writing to a junior demon. It's called the Screwtape Letters. The junior demon's project is to stop this guy from becoming a Christian. And he imagines something like this, you know, because often we think about, well, how does spiritual stuff happen? It's all, you know, the crazy out there, witchcraft type things. And, and C.S. Lewis just makes it all seem a little bit more ordinary and mundane and day-to-day. There's one moment in the book where the man is in the British Museum and he's, um, you know, in his sort of, in his perusal of the objects and the stuff he's reading, it starts him on a, a bit of a, a thought journey, a process, where suddenly spiritual questions are coming to the fore for him, which can happen when you look at evidence for, for what the Bible has to say in a place like that. And Screwtape intervenes by making the man terribly hungry for lunch. And here's a quote from the book. It says, Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I got him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life was enough to show him that that sort of thing just couldn't be true. It's interesting, isn't it? That even if you felt a flutter of spiritual interest at some point, What he's saying is sometimes just being pushed into the real world, switching on the TV, uh, hanging out with friends might might cause all those thoughts that you were in the questions you had just to evaporate like they were nothing. And this is what Jesus is saying. He said, look, your heart can be like that. There's a spiritual reality you haven't seen is one thing you need to understand. The other thing I think you've got to grasp is this, that what Jesus is describing here is a matter of understanding. Whether you've really ever understood the gospel. Now, I say that because in, in Matthew's, um, Matthew's book, Matthew's gospel, when he's telling this exact same story, there's another line in there where Jesus describes what's going on for this person. He says, it says this, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown. Now, you know from ordinary life, that when something doesn't, when you don't fully grasp something, it doesn't, it doesn't remain with you, does it? Think about GCSE maths. There was some of that stuff that you never really understood. You kind of memorized how to do it for the exam, but never really sat with you in deep understanding. And it flew away the minute that you, that you, you were left the exam room. And for some people, that's exactly what happens in your spiritual life. It, it, never, it never resonated because you never really got it. And this is not in any way meant to be a kind of an insult to anyone's intellect because that's exactly not what the Bible has to say. It says it's nothing to do with intellectual capacity. You have both very smart and very people who do and do not believe and also 
little children do or do not believe. And it's got nothing to do with intellectual capacity. The Bible says it's much more about the spiritual reality in your life. It says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, you may have heard the words of the gospel. They've been run past you. But it's like you've never visited that country or you've never tasted that wine or you've never really you just it hasn't you don't really get it and I suppose my exhortation to you is well why don't you wrestle a bit harder with this if understanding is the issue then surely it's it's worth grappling with this before you just walk away and get sucked into you know the real life that Silas was talking about is there any hope for a person in that situation. Listen, friends, Jesus does not say that this is permanent or irreversible or hopeless. The Bible shows us in many, many places that God has a way of breaking into this kind of hardness. Sometimes it's through pain. And I, I say that because not as in any way to sound threatening, but rather because there might come a moment in your life when you face unimaginable pain, the death of a loved one, a diagnosis you didn't expect. Something, you know, these things happen to us all. And it may be at that moment that suddenly, that's like God plowing your heart. You think about how would you deal with a hardened path? You'd, one way is you crack the ground up. You break it up. And sometimes, and I've seen this, it's only when you're exposed to the pains of life that suddenly there's an openness. I think about situations I've known in my own life. My grandfather was a hard-bitten atheist, had no real relationship with my dad, and it was a source of unbelievable pain in my dad's life. And even when dad sort of tried to reconcile with him in later life, he couldn't, my grandfather could not help but mock my dad's faith. And it was just like pouring acid in a wound, you know. But on his deathbed, dying of cancer in his 80s in a hospital in Liverpool, my dad went to visit him and began just opening up Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Began talking to him about the reality of, of God and how he wants to be your shepherd, how he wants to tend to your life. And there, literally days before he died, he became a Christian. And he had visions of, of Jesus and of heaven, even in the hours before he died. And he spoke about what he was seeing. My wife and I were at the, the bedside of a medical student that my wife had known at med school, then a doctor who was too young, but was dying of cancer. And he'd had a kind of nominal faith. He'd known about God, but he'd never really had any relationship with Jesus. We visited. We took my dad along as well, who was a pastor at the time. And we just told him about the love of God. And in that moment of, of great, torturous pain, when you think he's leaving behind a wife and kids, his heart was opened up and he wanted to know Jesus Sometimes God will plow the ground. But sometimes also the Bible says he waters it. There's a verse in the book of Romans that says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. 
You may wake up one day and think, I have more than I deserve in life. The good things that, you know, where did all this come from? The Bible says every good thing comes from God. And sometimes it's through his kindness that it's like he waters the ground and one day you wake up and think, none of this, you know, I didn't get, I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't, these, these opportunities I had, the love that I've enjoyed, it might be the birth of a child and you, suddenly your mind is blown with the wonder of this unbelievably precious gift. It might be a loved one who was sick and then recovered when, when people were praying for them. And you think, you know, your heart is melted under the kindness of God. And I say all this really to prepare you, because right now it might be there's no hope. Well, you think there's nothing spiritual going on in my life. But one day, the things I've said might come back to you. And I trust God will do a work in you. That's the path. Here's the second thing. He talks about these, this rocky soil. The second type is, is described as those whose faith is very short-lived. And let me just read to you the verses. Verse 16 and 17. It says, These are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word... Immediately they fall away. In all my experiences of being a pastor, this is, this is probably the thing that, that, that gets me the most. It's the, the saddest thing. The thing which causes the most grief in pastoral ministry is when you see people whose, whose faith you know, shoots up with joy and excitement and wonder. And this is a good thing to behold. And then just as quickly it crashes to the ground. Sometimes it's, you know, whatever causes that. It could be that they go back to an old relationship. And something which pulls them, someone which pulls them away from this newfound faith. Sometimes it's that they just get a bit lazy about being with God's people. They stop attending and then whatever faith was there just evaporates. Sometimes it's that you fall out with someone at church. And unfortunately, that's uh, not an uncommon experience, right? We, whenever you put people into close proximity with the, each other, someone's going to offend you at some point. And the trouble is, when you think that that is Christianity, you walk away from the faith and not just deal with the, the offense with the person. A lot, too many people have walked away from God for what actually amounts to very silly reasons when you really think about it. Sometimes it's just like losing interest in, in the toys like you did at Christmas. You remember when you were a kid, you were desperate to have something. My mum always used to say, it'll be a nine days wonder. It's one of her northern sayings. Many, many of those have littered my childhood. But she said, it'll be a nine days wonder. In other words, you'll, be, you'll like it for nine days, and then when nine days is done, it's like it switches off. No interest whatsoever. And more often than not, she was exactly right. And some people are like that with faith. It's like they, they bluster into church, and everything is amazing for a, a short season. And then just as quickly, it's like night falls and they're gone. What's going on? Jesus describes this as a kind of shallow soil. You know, in Palestine, there was a, this rocky soil and limestone bedrock underneath, which made it you know, possible that you could only have a thin layer in some places of topsoil. And he says positively, it's the person who responds with passion and emotion to the reality of Jesus and the gospel. The message of Jesus dying for your sins so that you can live. And that response is a wonderful thing. There's no way that Jesus wants to criticize that joy 
that he's describing here. That is the right and appropriate way to respond to the reality of Christ. But, he says, when that joy is all you have, when that emotion is in isolation, because there's nothing else, that faith won't be sustained. He says the negative side of this is there's just nothing else to, to give this person any sustaining faith. And there can be all kinds of reasons why people end up in that situation. About, um, when was it? About, about uh, three, three or four years ago, I was uh, preaching in a church in a part of South Africa called Pretoria. And it was, it was an unusual opportunity for me because I don't know how I ended up preaching there. Someone just connected me and it was a very large church. It was like way out of my experience, realm of experience. But I gave it my best shot and I, I, I preached... Um, I preached a message which was very um, heart-searching, I suppose. And at the end, the guy who was leading the meeting got up and just gave an appeal. said, look, if anybody wants to come to know Jesus today, why don't you just put up your hand? Why don't you respond now? And a number of people did. And then at the end, a guy came up to me with his girlfriend. And the guy was obviously a Christian. He said, hey, my girlfriend wants to become a Christian today. And so we started to chat. And I was like, wonderful, wonderful. Can I just ask her a few questions? And the guy was interjecting. He was like, no, please, could you just pray with her? Just pray with her. Like, please just make it happen like quickly now. And uh, so we started chatting. I was like, I just need to ask her a couple of questions. Okay. So I turned to the, the girl and um, I said to her, so do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? And she looked at me and said, no. And I, at, at that moment, it was like, what's going on here? I was trying to piece together this situation. And to, the best I can explain, I think this is not an uncommon thing, was that sometimes you can get swept up with the excitement of, of, of a situation. Sometimes it's literally just a meeting, right? Good things happen in meetings, and God does great works in our lives. But sometimes the emotion, the euphoria even, of what God is doing among people can catch you up, and, but there's no real substance. There's no root, there's a lot, actually, I think that's attractive about Christianity in which people resonate with, with joy. There's things like the promise of belonging, being part of a global family. There's a certainty of having a worldview that makes sense of everything you see rather than you know, guessing and wandering in the dark, as, as is true of a secular life. You know, the, you, the, the best in, interpretations and explanations you have of things without God are just guesses at the end of the day. But suddenly you have a system that gives you a whole life and worldview. That's appealing. Sometimes it's the experience of God. You're in a meeting and you sense the Holy Spirit is doing things. And you can be caught up in that. And that's a wonderful thing. Whatever it is, there can be, there's a ton that's attractive about Christianity. But none of that in and of itself makes you a Christian. None of that gives you roots. And the roots are, you know, to list a number of things, it's, it's, it's an awareness of your absolute need for God. That without him you are, you're in trouble. There has to be something of a, a growing reverence and fear for who God is. I think when people become a Christian in the Bible, it's always because they're confronted with the holiness of God. That they recognize that he is unapproachable light. That he is pure and that purity is both attractive and terrifying at the same time. The realization that you are in his presence and that he sees every inclination of your heart. 
And then to go alongside these two things, there is what, what bridges that great gap, the understanding that Jesus has borne your sins to make you clean so that you can be in the presence of that almighty God. Without those things present in your life as roots and as foundations, then what you have is not Christianity. You have something, a diminished version, a thinned down version. And you ask, well, what happens to such people? Jesus says when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they fall away. And he's not just talking about generic hardship. You know, that might do it as well. But he's saying about the particular, specific challenges that you face the minute you profess that you're a Christian. And there are a number of those. One of them is that you face you know, the whole issue of sin and temptation becomes much bigger deal than it was before you, before you became a Christian. Suddenly you realize there's painful decisions you have to make. And that is enough for some people to cause them to walk away. There's also the feeling that things that you thought were okay in your life are not so okay, actually. That you sense the Holy Spirit beginning to, to do kind of a heart surgery in you, to dig around in your soul, and you find things that you thought were fine. You know, before you knew, knew anything of this message, you suddenly realize things are not so fine. And that can be painful. It can, be, it can lead to people wanting to kind of metaphorically get up off the operating table and run out of the room as quickly as possible. Sometimes it's just embarrassment. You know, I don't think anything... You know, we, we might think particularly today it's embarrassing to say that you're a Christian. That's always been embarrassing. That's the reality. Especially if you, you're a real Christian, you know, someone who really believes this stuff. There was just a thing this last week that said that basically a study had been done to show that people who really believe their faith, who are kind of labeled fundamentalists, are, are mentally impaired. You think, well, that's, that's amazing how people come up with this stuff. And you think, well, look, if that's, if that's what you're up against, then you are, you're in a situation in which you know, suddenly you become uncomfortable in situations and it's no longer so attractive. And the thought process goes, this is not what I signed up for. You know, I was drawn to certain things, certain things made me attracted, certain things seemed appealing about Christianity. But this, the pain I'm going through, the embarrassment or ridicule or worse that I'm going through, the cutting away of parts of my life that are significant that I'm going through, all of that means that it's not worth it anymore. And the version of Christianity, which was the version in which you just experienced a happy, smiley, cloud-floating existence, wasn't real Christianity anyway, and so you're rejecting something that wasn't real. What, what about you? If that's you, God's gonna, God, God would call you, not just to the, the froth, as it were, but to the substance, to engage with the real thing. Here's the last thing. It's the thorny soil. Now, this is the most subtle and the most difficult to discern of what we're talking about here. The first two are obvious because those people, they just walk away. But he describes this third kind. He says, others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, here's why I say this one is more subtle and more difficult and more challenging than the others. Because 
These kinds of people populate churches all over the world. They're kind of incognito. And what Jesus is describing here is a reality of those who are kind of nominally Christian, Christian in name only. You profess Jesus, you go to church, but, and maybe only at Easter, but the key diagnostic that he mentions here is that there's no fruit in your life. The results, the natural byproduct of what it really means to, be, to believe in Jesus and to be connected to him, that fruit doesn't show itself, whether that's the fruit of changed life, and I want to dig into this much more next week, your own life being changed, whether it's the, the fruit of, of what God's called you to in this world and the impact that he's called you to, or whether it's the fruit of, of helping others, sharing your faith and helping others discover who Jesus is. None of these things are evident in you. It's a little bit like, um, you know, if you cross, there are certain, there are certain um, species which you can interbreed. And when you interbreed them, you, you create offspring, which are basically a mixture of the two, but they're infertile. It's one of the definitions of a distinction of species. If the offspring are infertile, then they're two separate species. So, for example, you take a horse and a donkey. They breed together. They produce a mule. Now, a mule is a very useful animal, so I hear. But they are, they're also infertile. Mules can't have offspring. They can't, they can't have children. There's no fruit that comes out of their life in that sense, just to use it metaphorically. Or you, you bring a lion and a tiger together. They produce a liger. Or a tie I'm not sure, but I think it's a liger, they call it. And um, this thing is it's an interesting to look at. It's a beautiful creature, but it's totally fruitless, totally infertile. You can't produce a whole new line of ligers out of it. And there's a sense in which this is what Jesus is talking about here. There's some people whose lives are characterized by a kind of mixture. But there's, a bit of, there's just a bit of faith, but there's also a ton of other stuff in the mix. And what it creates is this kind of fruitless existence. Jesus blames the thorns. The thorns you know, are representing. You know, when thorns grow in, in a field, they are aggressively um, abundant. You have to rip them up because those things steal all the light. They steal the water. They steal the nutrients. And Jesus says, look, for some people, that's exactly what your spiritual life is like. The word of God had some impact on you and there was some kind of way in which you seemed to resonate with it and you maybe you, you professed Jesus you became a Christian it would seem but in the midst there was all this competing thoughts and desires it takes all your energies your time your gifts there's a place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says he says you can only dev- be devoted to one god at a time basically there he sets up the contrast with money. He says you can't, you can't worship God and money at the same time. You've got to choose. There's no, it's not possible for the human heart to simultaneously offer appropriate devotion to these two all-consuming claims on your life. And for some people, that's the problem. Your heart is flitting around between different things so that God isn't your everything. Jesus narrows this down to a few things, which I think for us as Londoners, those of you who live in this city, this is just ordinary life, isn't it? He mentions a few things. One of them is he mentions cares, but they're, 
The word can be translated the anxieties of life. He mentions anxiety. Now, there's tons that can be said about anxiety. But let me boil it down to just this. Anxiety can drive you to God or it can drive you away from God. Either your anxieties become the reason why you, you, you lean into faith and you draw from God the resources that you need for day-to-day life, which is full of challenges that you can't control. Or it becomes a reason to try and control your life. And in that sense, becoming your own functional God and turning your back on the living God. And when that happens, anxieties become the reason why someone's mind is so distracted from any, any real relationship with God and rather is wrapped up in all kinds of stuff. These daily concerns. He talks about anxieties. He talks about lying wealth. What He says the deceitfulness of riches. You know, why, is, why, why does wealth lie? Because it always tells you you need more. You never have enough. I was, you know, one of the things that's quite interesting watching my son at the moment, he's five, he's about to turn six, is that he's, he's managed to collect a little bit of cash from, you know, gifts that were given to him, Chinese New Year or, you know, birthday or that kind of thing, and he's got a pot of coins. And he suddenly realized how powerful these coins are. <laughs> and he can go into a shop and look at something and say, I want it, and he can exchange the coins to have the thing. And we had a little discussion around this yesterday when he saw a toy car. And I was like, you don't play with cars anymore. He said, I do play with cars. You don't play with cars. I do play with cars. You just don't come in my bedroom. I do go in his bedroom, but he's never playing with cars. So this morning I walk into his bedroom and he's got the car box out. He's not playing with them. He's like, Daddy, see, I do play with the cars. <laughs> and uh, just watching him, we took him to an arcade. Um, but we were, on a, uh, we were on holiday last week and we took him to this pier uh, in the Isle of Wight where they had these, uh, those arcade machines where the coins are just tantalizingly balanced on the edge. You know the ones? And you drop in another 2p in the hope that there'll be a flood of 2p's that just pour out the thing. And of course, they're rigged so that you never, you can't really get out more than you put in. But for a kid, and I remember this when I was a child, you know, you, you bash that thing, you kind of give it a nudge, hope that they'll just tip out. But Seth was fascinated with this because suddenly he's like, money, I can get some money. My kids were having a chat on the way home. I can't remember how it came up, but we were listening to them in the back seat. And Isla, the younger one, was asking Seth. She was like, what does rich mean? Seth's got an obsession with like, sparkly like, stones and quartz and stuff like that at the moment. He was like, he said, well, it's when you have lots of jewels and, uh, and things like that and precious things and, and also lots of money. And Isla said to him, you have a lot of money. you're rich. And Seth was like, no, I've only got 10 coins. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just so interesting to see this interaction. Like for Isla, who literally has nothing, um, <laughs> Seth is rich. But for Seth, who's only got 10 coins, he's like, I'm not rich yet. There's more out there I need to get. And I, this, is, this, is how, this is what Jesus is talking about. No, wealth is probably the most insidious and dangerous of all potential thorns in your life because you will never have enough and the, the pursuit of the next sort of wealth bracket will become all-consuming to the exclusion of any kind of faith that you once thought you had. 
Lying wealth, he mentions. Anxiety is lying wealth. And the third thing he just says is just kind of catch-all. He says the desire for other things. Now, I find it interesting that he doesn't even bother specifying. Because he just, like, he just knows you know what he's talking about. It's like when the Holy Spirit's at work in your heart, nobody needs to tell you what the distracting thing is in your life. You know. You know what it is. What's the thing that's competing with God? What's the thing which is choking off spiritual hunger, delight, and joy in the Father? What is it that stops you from praying? What is it that consumes your thoughts from the minute you wake up to the, you hit the sack at night? Desire for other things. What's that thing? Sometimes it's a person or the idea of a person, just the, the idea of being in a relationship. Sometimes it's the career progression or whatever it is that you obsess about, a hobby or whatever. He just says desire for other things. Just chokes the word off. I want to leave you with just two thoughts as I close. This parable only has a purpose if it can produce change in you. I don't think Jesus was speaking into the air and just sort of writing off these three kinds of soil like as though, well, that's just, uh, you know, sad. it's a sad situation, but, you know, I'm just interested in the fruitful bunch over here. No, no. When Jesus taught things like this, The word of God has a potency to change you. Only if it's met with a desire to repent, of course, which is to turn away from the stuff you need to turn from. And it's a little bit like holding up a mirror to you. You ever been in a situation, sometimes, whether you do or do not have a full-length mirror in your house can make a big difference on what you do with and to your body, right? In the sense that if there is no mirror, before long you are losing all consciousness of whether you look good, look bad, look fat, look thin, look toned, whatever. It's just you're unaware of it. You know, you go, you go on holiday, there's no mirror, there's no, you know, no awareness. You suddenly become, become a slob, don't you, and all the rest of it. And then you, you suddenly see, if you put one of these things in your house, man, suddenly ch- you, I'm going to leave you to guess whether we have one in our house at the moment. But... Um, <laughs> The mirror has a, has a power to change your life, doesn't it? Because it changes the way you see yourself. And the same is true when Jesus paints a picture like this in parable form. He's putting a mirror in front of your, your existence. And he's saying, can you see yourself? If you see yourself, then there's a, there's a hope to change. If you know exactly what it is that is stopping you from enjoying spiritual life or knowing him then you, you might just know what to do about it. Jesus' desire for you is immeasurable good. I want to take time next week to open up a fuller, joy-giving explanation of what Christ wants to do in your life. But if I could just suggest a few thoughts to you as we close. He wants to change you. The gospel is nothing if it is not a transforming power at work in your life. I think the picture of seed is so apt. Because seed looks unpromising on the surface, but it has all the capacity of life. When God's word gets into your heart, it affects change to you that you didn't even choose or attempt to bring about. It's incredible. He wants to change you. He wants to make you 
live an impactful life. It's one of my favorite quotes in Gladiator. He says, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And he's right. He's absolutely right. Go Maximus. There's a sense in which, you know, what, it, what is life without God? Life without God is, is working hard, collecting things, being snuffed out and leaving it all behind. Meaningless, right? Meaningless, meaningless, like the, the author of Ecclesiastes says. Futile, empty. But when you know God, and you understand that this short life is but the beginning, every, every ounce of time and energy and desire and effort spent in glory for Jesus has an eternal impact. He wants to invest you with purpose. That's some of what it means to bring about fruit in your life when he says that this soil produces fruit. He wants to save you. The fruit isn't the reason you get saved. It's just the evidence that he has done a real work in your life and that you're safe for eternity. Praise Jesus.